Solitaire Rose Novel Cast, Graceland, Part 3. it's been a long time. No, I don't want to talk about it. However, with the uh, state of the world right now, and the coronavirus, and all of us needing to stay home, I figured that on top of the two jobs I have and the comic book podcast I do, I want to do my part to help people. So I've been asked a lot to uh, get working on this. I've tried. This is the most um, work-intensive podcast I do. But I have uh, started it up again. I am putting aside the time to keep it going. There will be two podcasts a week from the Solitaire Rose Network. And I do all of these podcasts. The Solitaire Rose Podcast Network is filled with all kinds of audio goodness. First, there's Crazy Comics and Stories. It's been going since 2010. It drops every Monday, and it has me, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard, and Joe Crazy Writer talking comics, shenanigans, and whatever we're freaking and geeking about. Every Monday morning. It's been going since 2010, and it's available at crazycomics.solitairerose.com. Also on that same feed is the Solitaire Rose Podcast, which is me, again, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard, doing interviews, talking about comics, talking about comics history, pretty much talking about whatever I want to talk about. We've also got Solo Joe, where Joe Crazy Rider does a solo podcast, and he hasn't done one in a while, so kick him in the shins to get him started. We also, on that same feed, have Solitaire Rose Series and Review, where we do DVD commentary of older comic book series. That's all at crazycomics.solitairerose.com. I also do a podcast with Wolfie B. Bad at badadvice.solitairerose.com, where we take listener questions and give them bad advice. There's also Novelcast, where I take the novels I've written and turn them into free audiobooks. That's at novels.solitairerose.com. There's also Fantastic Forecast, where myself and Adam Vermillion are going through the entire run of the Fantastic Four, four issues at a time. That's fantasticforecast.solitairerose.com. And if you think that I'm on all of these podcasts, you're wrong. Because Scrabbling Across the West is at scrabbling.solitairerose.com, where musician Dave Cofell and his wife Stephanie travel across America and then sitting down to play Scrabble and talk about the day. That's at Scrabbling Across the West, scrabbling.solitairerose.com. There are always more podcasts at the Solitaire Rose Podcast Network. Be there. Aloha. There, I got that out of the way early. If you haven't been here for a while and you don't want to go back and listen to the two two, uh, previous episodes, this is set in the um, After the Fall world. This is a world where a zombie pandemic, zombie apocalypse, destroyed civilization. It is five years later, and the survivors are trying to make their way in this new world. What you need to know 
we have a group of characters who have joined up with pilgrims from all over the U.S. who are coming to Memphis, Tennessee. For some reason, they believe that Graceland is where they can start over. Graceland is important to them. They have sent ahead scouts to see what's going on in Memphis, Tennessee, because most of the cities are still overrun by zombies. They're still not safe. So the characters in this novel are the ones who have been tasked to go check out and see what's happening in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where we begin. The next day was much the same. However, there were a few zombies that they had to pick off. None of them got close enough to be considered a threat. But when they would check the remains, they would be the same as the ones that attacked the camp the night before they left. Fresh. Blood still red. Bo was the one who took most of them down and showed himself to be a crack shot. Ray lightened up on the second Ray lightened up the second day as well, and spent more time talking with the rest of the group. As the day stretched on, they could tell by the signs on the side of the road they were almost there. Billboards promised strippers, car dealerships, and, of course, Graceland. Many of the billboards were peeling, and more than a few were collapsed, a pile of metal and wood on the ground. The number of cars by the side of the road grew, and after a while they didn't even bother to check them over anymore, knowing there would be nothing of interest inside. As the sun was setting, they came over a hill and were able to see Memphis. The sight was enough to make Ray turn around and go back, and he wasn't the only one upset by what he saw. They were at the top of a hill, on the interstate, looking into the Mississippi Valley, and the sight was devastating. In better times, Ray had driven to the city innumerable times, and the hill was one of his favorite sights. He would come over the hill, see the bridge that led into the city, lit up with different colored lights, the city would rise above the river valley, a multicolored mix of buildings lit up, making the night sky glow. Now, the bottom of the hill showed a large number of tanks and other discarded military equipment. The bridge was destroyed, with most of the structure simply gone, what was left looking like it was about to fall into the river. Looking at the city itself was what hurt the most, though. One of the main skyscrapers was simply gone, and there was a thin black line of smoke still rising from the area it had been. They were still far away, but they could tell that most of the buildings no longer had glass in their windows because there was no reflection of the sunlight. I knew things were bad, but Bo started. But if you don't see it, you don't think about it, Hunter finished. Jenny was standing next to Hunter. He put his arm around her. Before Ray could realize that he had tears coming down. They all did. I say we camp here, Mark said, trying to sound confident. Yeah, Ray said. They ate in silence and didn't build a fire, seeing as how they were close enough to the city that they were worried about attracting attention. An hour later, the area was dark. Ray was watching the city through his field glasses, trying to see if he could get a glimpse of what was causing the smoke. He watched for what felt like hours before giving up. It would have to be a hell of a big fire to be seen from here, Bell finally said when Ray put the glasses down. I was just wondering about the fact that there are fresh zombies still smoke rising from a city that can't be gotten to from here, Ray said. There's a bridge about 30 miles north of here that you could probably cross, but that would take about three days off our travel time. I think we should try to cross the river. There have got to be some boats down by the riverbank. 
This was pretty good fishing. A lot of people had docks along this area, Bo said. I think we should head back. Let everyone know the bridge is gone and we'll have to find a different way. There's no way we could get people across, even if we do find a couple of boats, Angela said, obviously shaken by what she'd seen. Ray understood how she felt. There was nothing in the world he wanted to do more than turn around and head back. Telling people that there was no way to get into the city. He couldn't. That was why he was sent here. That wasn't why he was sent here, so he said. We need to at least try to make it into the city. Before we left, we said we'd be a week. Going three days out of our way means that we won't be back in time and they'll send more people to do what we're doing. We aren't supposed to worry about how to get everyone there. That's not our job. Our job is to get all the information we can and make it back alive. Then we go back and tell them we're not as close as we thought. And do it again when we get to the other side of the river, Angela said. I think we could cross the river pretty easily, Bo said. Even if there isn't a boat down there, we can lash together a few logs and put together a makeshift raft. We get across and we're home free. If by home free you mean zombie chow on the hoof, then you're right, Angela said. Even if we do make it across the river, everything on the other side will see us and be waiting. We'll be out in the open and the only boat on the damn river. They don't hunt people by sight. They do it by smell. I figured that out on the spacious Bow Clapton estate when I was hunting deer back when they showed up. I was just covered in deer scent. They walked right by one without... <clears throat> they don't hunt people by sight. They do it by smell. I figured that out on the spacious Bow Clapton estate when I was hunting deer back when they showed up. I was just covered in deer scent and walked right by one without knowing it. The dead bastard just kept walking toward the house, and when I finally saw him, he'd been within five feet of me and just went right by. They're smart enough to go where the light is at night, but without that, they just move toward the smell. So, we need to find a deer and convince it to give up a bunch of urine, Angela snapped, her patience rearing thin. Ray glared at her and she backed down. Before he could say anything else, Hunter spoke up. He was seated with the rest of them, but Jenny was leaning on his shoulder, eyes closed, grasping his hand. Ray would have thought she was asleep if not for her thumb making lazy circular motions on Hunter's wrist as they sat there. I don't like this. Things aren't adding up, he said, putting his arm around Jenny and resting it on the top of her head, touching her red hair. You always think things are about to fall apart, Hunt, Bo said. We just haven't been near a city in a while and you forgot how bad things looked. No, Hunter said quietly. There are just a lot of odd things. The fresh zombies had to come from somewhere, but we know they didn't swim the river. Add to that the zombie you could talk back at the old house, and we should be a bit worried. What do you think, Tommy? Ray asked. Tommy had been sitting with his back against a rock, his arms wrapped around his legs as if he was trying to curl into a ball. He looked startled that anyone would want to talk to him, and he said, What do I think? I didn't bring you along to be a parrot, kid, Ray said in his best impression of the drill sergeant who had been in his nightmares since basic training. I asked you for your opinion. You're a fresh set of eyes. Yeah, kid, Hunter said, picking up on what Ray was doing. Do you think we're walking into a trap? I don't think so, Tommy said, obviously taking his time and thinking about it. Most of the zombies don't know how to set a trap. They just go where their nose takes them. But I don't like the idea of walking along the riverbank either. The zombies tend to move toward buildings, and if they can see the buildings, they'll be down by the side of the river trying to find a way across to get to the city. I like this kid, Ray said, still channeling his drill instructor. I agree with that, 
but I have the field glasses. So if we look for a boat heading down to the riverbank, we should minimize the time we spend down by the river. That should drop the level of danger. I'm more worried about the smart zombies from back in the house, Alice finally said. If it's been following us, that would be the perfect place for it to try something. I've been worried about it too, Angela said. The way it was talking to us, I don't think it's likely to just wander off into the woods and give up. It was pretty determined, and the only reason it ran off was because the Elvis people showed up with even greater numbers. I agree, Mark said, but there's not much we could do about it other than keep a low profile and be ready. I hope that's enough, Ray said. I'll take first watch, but we'd better be ready to move at first light. I don't want to spend a night in Memphis if we don't have to. The talking zombie they were discussing was something to worry about, but he wasn't anywhere near them. His name was Eddie, and he was on the hunt. Usually when he was hunting, he was looking for humans, but not this time. He knew that his last group was outnumbered, and it was only because he was smarter than the others that he was able to get away. He spent his days moving, keeping to the woods, staying away from humans, even though his body screamed for fresh meat. He subsisted on captured squirrels and rabbits, and he ate them, trying to keep them down. His stomach churned as he forced the vile meat down. His system could survive on it, but he was driven to eat the flesh of humans. It was the only thing that got rid of the pain, the constant pain of survival. For days he walked through the woods, not seeing or smelling any signs of humans. He knew that the large group that had attacked him were going to keep moving. The house wasn't big enough for all of them, and he heard them talk about going to a place called Graceland when he hid in the woods after the battle. They spoke about it endlessly, and the remnants of his memory stirred to life as they spoke. He knew that it was a place in a city, that it had once been important, but he didn't know exactly where it was. He backtracked to where he'd been weeks before. After days of travel, he made it to his destination. He got there in the dark, having no need for sleep. His eyes worked differently than they did when he was human. He could see more of the electromagnetic spectrum, but he wouldn't be able to explain it. He could see all the visual light, but he also had a slight ability to see heat as well, which made up for the problems his brains had in processing the visual stimuli. It was different from when he was unable to speak, unable to think. Then he would rely primarily on smell and movement, but now he could hunt more effectively. It didn't help him where he was going, though. When he finally saw his destination, he laughed, a dull, dusty laugh that had no joy in it at all. There in the distance was a series of large concrete buildings surrounded by a high fence topped with barbed wire. The front gate was open. There were scattered vehicles inside, but no signs of life whatsoever. Eddie picked up the pace and continued to laugh to himself as he forged ahead. When he got to the main gate, he looked at the sign hanging over the empty guardhouse. Federal Security Prison. No unauthorized entry. He laughed at that as well and said, I authorize my entry. Try to stop me. He stood there, arms outstretched, eyes closed, as if waiting for someone to shoot him. Nothing happened and he laughed harder. Laughing so hard he dropped to his knees. When he regained his composure he stood up and went into the small building by the gate. The interior was empty. Anything that had been there was long gone, taken by escaping prisoners or people who'd come by looking for food or weapons. That's all that really mattered in a world to the living anymore. 
food and weapons, money, power, prestige, social setting, religion, political beliefs, and possessions, all washed away, meaningless. The things that people had fought over for years, ended friendships, marriages, and broken families apart were now worthless. An SUV was the same as a Geo Metro, a rusting hunk of metal. To Eddie, the only thing that mattered was the fact that he'd made it to the prison. He walked across the deserted grounds to the main incarceration building and saw that the door was shut. He tugged at it, and eventually it came open with the sound of wrenching metal. It hadn't been locked, but the rain and disuse had rusted the hinges, making it next to impossible for a normal person to open. Eddie was much stronger than a normal person, however. He stepped inside and the building was dark. The windows for the building were small and located in closed prison cells behind bars. During the day, the building was dark, but at night it was next to impossible for Eddie to see anything. He waited, hoping his eyes would adjust, and as they did, he saw what he suspected. The cells were all closed, and inside. When the end came, any prisoner who was infected was forced into a cell, and the cell locked behind them. As the infection spread, they were left in their cells to die, and then rise again. Eventually, the guards were either infected or simply got away, leaving the prison filled with cells filled with zombies. They had not fed, so they were dormant, lying on the ground, waiting for food to come close enough that they could grab and eat it. Some had lasted a while longer, eating rats until they were gone. As the sun came up, small amounts of light came into the prison. Nettie walked the line, looking in the cells. Because he was one of them, his body didn't prompt the dormant dead to come out of their hibernation. But he checked the cells. There were more here than he thought there would be, but it was worthless if he didn't figure out a way to get them out of dormancy than out of the cells. He searched for keys. Toward the end of the day, he was able to find the security room, which had a few weapons that hadn't been stolen, armor, and the master key ring. Normally, the locks were controlled electronically, but they still had to have a mechanism so that they could be opened in case of a power outage. Eddie walked through the facility as it was growing dark, unlocking cells and thinking of how he would be able to awaken his new army. Interlude 1 The official corporate line of frequency and intensity was that it was a nightmare, and they would do everything they could to cooperate with the government to give the public information they needed to keep themselves safe. The truth was that in the boardroom of CNN, they were thinking this was the best thing that had ever happened to them. Since the first outbreaks in St. Louis, the ratings had risen at an amazing pace, and now they were tied for the most-watched network in the U.S. Not the most-watched cable network, the most-watched network. Local stations had inked deals with them to carry their programming, paying through the nose for it and getting none of the advertising revenue. Ads had taken off as well. Every security company in the U.S. was clamoring to buy time, and the government removed all restrictions on gun advertising after the gun lobby had asked for a crisis exemption to the rules. They plastered the airwaves with ads for rifles and builders who would make secure basements, gas-powered generators, and the like. People were buying them as if their lives depended on it, and CNN was able to charge whatever they wanted for those ads. Bill Johnson, who was in charge of the on-air evening shows, had gotten rid of all the normal programming, other than Larry King, who'd always resembled the living dead. He did everything in his power to make CNN the most watched network. 
While Fox and NBC kept having argument shows and government spokesmen telling everyone all is well, CNN went the tabloid route. They had cameramen with police and military getting firefights on the air and showing how things were collapsing. They had map graphics showing where the infestation had overrun cities, scientific projections, and people on the air giving advice on how to fight the damn things constantly. It didn't matter that some of the advice was contradictory, or that they took every opportunity to show a zombie getting its head blown off by a machine gun round. They were on the air, they were on the story, and the money was rolling in. Bill sat in his office, looking out over the Atlanta skyline, smiling to himself. His bonus was based on the amount the evening division made, and as it looked now, he would be an insanely wealthy man. He didn't even have to try to buy to raise ad rates. He would simply announce an auction for the time slots and let the advertisers fight it out. They'd even set up an eBay-like site for ad buyers to log into, and it cost them money to buy a password so that they could buy an ad slot. He was spending his bonus in his head when there was a knock on the door. Come on in, he said, not even thinking that his secretary usually announces people. The door opened and Eli Coates from Time Warner strolled in and sat down across from his desk. Bill was immediately aware of the mess his office had become. There were reams of printouts on the floor around his desk, and on his desk were scattered files, travel brochures, and memos from different divisions that he didn't give enough of a damn to read. The office itself was high up in the CNN tower, and he had a large window behind his large desk. His walls were filled with bookshelves that had various awards and signed books by CNN employees and pictures of him and his latest girlfriend in classy handmade frames. Eli was a tall, gaunt man who was best known for being the most dangerous man at Time Warner. He had been the executive who got rid of unprofitable decisions and cared only about the bottom line. Most of the smaller parts of the company simply hoped he had no idea they were part of Time Warner because if he knew about you, you didn't make enough profit in his mind, you'd be shut down and your assets submerged into the larger company holdings, put away for a time when they might need a division like that again. Despite the reputation, Bill wasn't worried. Eli was also the man who'd moved him up the ladder rapidly. They'd worked together on a lot of different projects, and Eli was the one who'd given him the authorization to make the sky the limit for ad buys on CNN once the infection left St. Louis. I'm afraid I have some bad news for you, Bill, Eli started. Bill laughed, a sick, nervous laugh. In his mind, he went over everything that could go bad and how he would explain it. He hadn't embezzled any money that he knew of, but he didn't pay attention to detail. He'd gotten approval every step of the way for the fleecing of advertisers. He hadn't gotten in the way of the news division, just told them to get as much blood and violence on the air as they could stand. All of this went through Bill's mind in an instant before he answered, What would that be? No, I'm not here to fire you, Eli started, a grim grin spreading over his face. Company is very happy with you. However, the government is not. They have demanded that we turn over broadcasting to them. Excuse me, Bill said, not quite believing what he'd heard. They're declaring it a national emergency in a state of war, part of Patriot Act Three is that they could take over any network, broadcast or cable, in the event of a national emergency. They just passed that last week. It hasn't even passed a constitutional test, Bill yelled. We have been told that we are free to take them to court, but they have also suspended court operations for the duration of the emergency. 
We're turning it over to them at midnight tonight. I'm here to let you know that the corporate heads are leaving the city before then to head for safer climbs. Like? I'm not at liberty to say unless you're wanting to go along. You will not be able to bring anyone with you. Bill looked over at the picture of his girlfriend. Slight twinge of guilt made him consider it for a second, but then he said, I'm in. Good, Eli replied. I was hoping you'd come along. I need someone ruthless enough to play poker with while we wait for this thing to blow over. And it will blow over? Eli smiled, and for the first time Bill understood why some employees feared Eli's smile more than his anger. I've been assured by the administration that this is a temporary setback, and we all know how their temporary setbacks go. Oh my God, Bill said, and slumped back in his seat the weight of what was going on finally hitting him. This wasn't another hurricane or tornado story. This wasn't something they'd whipped up to get the people watching Trial of the Century stories. This was the real thing. He swiveled in his chair and looked out the huge window, paying attention to what he was seeing for the first time that day. Off in the distance, in the outer suburbs, he could see smoke rising. In the sky were fighter jets in tight formation, looping over the city at speeds that boggled his mind. When are we leaving? The chopper will be on the roof in an hour. Sorry that you won't be able to bring anything from home, but the corporate head said that they've stocked the bunker well enough to last a few months without concern. Is this the end, Bill said? Eli wisely said nothing, and left him there to watch the fires in Atlanta start to grow. And there you have it, part three of After the Fall, Graceland. All of the podcasts here at the Solitaire Rose Radio Network have have ads. We have sponsors like these. Believe it or not, kids, this here podcast has sponsors. And that sponsor since day one is DreamHost.com. DreamHost.com is the best bar none web host in the whole known universe. And if you need a website, head on over to DreamHost.com, put in code CRAZY, that's K-R-A-Y-Z, and get $20 off your first year. Now, if you would like to advertise here on any of the Solitaire Rose Network podcasts, you can just email me at SolitaireRoseNetwork at gmail.com, subject advertising. Also, head on over to eBay and look for user Crazy, K-R-A-Y-Z, that's Joe Crazy Writer, who's always telling us about the eBay in every episode of Crazy Comics and Stories. If you would like to contact us, you can do so. You can give us a call at... 952-856-0519, leave a message, and we'll play it on the show. Or you can send us an email at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com. Thanks. If you've not listened to any of the novel casts, there are three novels that are previously complete. Uh, go listen to them. Um, put them in your iPad, put them in your cell phone, put them in your uh, tablet, um, I have not put them up on YouTube yet. I'm wondering if people are interested in that. If so, I can work on putting them up on YouTube to make them more available to people who want to basically listen to it on the YouTubes. Um, if you want to go over and listen to crazy comics and stories that some of the other podcasts I do that are on the YouTubes, uh, just search for Corey Strode 
and um, that's where you can listen to them. Otherwise, we will be back in two weeks with the next episode of Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Graceland. Believe it or not, kids, this here podcast has sponsors, and that sponsor since day one is DreamHost.com. DreamHost.com is the best bar none web host in the whole known universe. And if you need a website, head on over to DreamHost.com, put in code CRAZY, that's K-R-A-Y-Z, and get $20 off your first year. Now, if you would like to advertise here on any of the Solitaire Rose Network podcasts, you can just email me at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com, subject advertising. Also, head on over to eBay and look for user Crazy, K-R-A-Y-Z, that's Joe Crazy Writer, who's always telling us about the eBay in every episode of Crazy Comics and Stories. If you would like to contact us, you can do so. You can give us a call at... 952-856-0519, leave a message, and we'll play it on the show. Or you can send us an email at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com. Thanks.